This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends, and welcome back. Uh, first off, I want to say it's a windy winter day here in St. Petersburg, Russia. So apologies if you can hear in the background the sounds of the wind outside. Right now, it's not too bad. I have a little housekeeping to do before we start on the subject at hand. Now that I have a few talks under my belt, I think it's time for my listeners to have a way to communicate with me. If you'd like to drop me a note, please use this email address, ancientpathspodcast at gmail.com. Please feel free to communicate with me about anything related to my talks, or perhaps you have a question you'd like me to address. One listener suggested that I take some time to answer your questions, if you have anything to share with me. Again, the email address is ancientpathspodcast at gmail.com. And I don't think I really need to say this, but I will. Let's be civil and mature in our communication. We want our speech to be full of grace and consideration. I'll assume the best of you, and please assume the best of me. In part one of this series on two kingdoms, I gave an introduction to the idea that there are indeed two kingdoms one ruled by Satan, the adversary, and one ruled by Jesus. Jesus spoke of these two kingdoms himself. And we are called by Jesus to move from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of God. And these two kingdoms are dramatically different. They're completely different. In part two, I discuss the role of hardship, pain, and suffering within the kingdom of God. I encourage you to listen to those other messages if you haven't already. And before moving on, I want to make a point that I touched on before and now want to emphasize. God uses hardships and difficulties as tools to form his character in us while we live in this world. But there will be a new earth and a new creation, and there will be no suffering there. God prepares us for this resurrection life by allowing us to be humbled to face hardships, so that we will learn that we must depend on him in everything. Through suffering, we learn that we need him more than anything in all of creation. And these hardships will cease when our spirits slip from our bodies. Then we will be fully complete, not lacking anything, because we'll be like him when we see him face to face. And as a reminder, I am addressing followers of Jesus in my talks. Those who do not believe in Jesus and do not follow him will not receive the benefits of his promises. Jesus makes it very clear that people who do not believe in him will suffer in the world to come. My previous talk on John 3.16 gives God's perspective on salvation and perishing. So, to move on. In God's kingdom, even words have different meanings, and this is a key understanding, and it's been very, very helpful to me over the years. First, I'll talk about life and death. Surely, everyone knows what we mean when we say that someone is alive and when someone is dead, but to God, these words have different meanings. What does death mean to God? In Matthew chapter 8, we read, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. And then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. 
And Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, there are different understandings of what this man meant when he said, let me go bury my father. Some think, and I tend to think, that it meant that his father had died and they needed to bury him. Others have said that in that culture, let me go bury my father meant, let me go back to my family until my father has passed away and then wrap everything up, and then I'll follow you once I take care of everything. In either case, Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. The people who buried the Father, they were alive. They were breathing and walking and living. And yet, in the eyes of Jesus, they were dead. Isn't that something? When he looked at people who were alive and living life normally as we would define life, he considered them to be dead. They needed to be born again. That's the phrase uh, that was introduced by Jesus in John chapter 3. And he saw that they were dead. They needed to be born again. That phrase, to be born again, also has the meaning to be born from above. That's interesting, to start from above. And we use this language in music. When you're playing some music, if you're rehearsing and practicing, uh, the conductor will say, let's take it from the top. Let's take it from above. Let's start over. So to be born again is to take life from the top, just like in music. You've gotten to a certain point. Things are not the way they should be. Let's go back. Let's take it from the top. So to be born again, to take it from the top, is to have a new life, a life that is eternal. In Matthew chapter 16, we read, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. There's the kingdom again. But look at that phrase that Jesus says. Some will not taste death. Now, isn't that something? Our bodies will stop working. Our spirits will leave our bodies. And yet, some will not taste death. That's amazing. What does it mean to be alive? In Luke 23, we read about this conversation that Jesus had with one of the criminals on a cross next to him. This was a criminal that believed in him. And the criminal said to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's the kingdom. He realized that Jesus was a king. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. The thief was about to suffer a horrible death and be quite dead by the world's standards. In those days, anyone who died on a cross was not buried. They were taken down off the cross, and their bodies were thrown out of the dung gate down into a deep valley outside of the city. And that's another reason why it's remarkable that Jesus was actually buried in a tomb, because anyone who died on a cross, they were not buried. They were thrown out like rubbish. And this thief, in the next few hours, was going to suffer terribly. What happened to him is that uh, in order for there not to be bodies hanging there, they went and broke his legs. That's a horrible death. On a cross, the way that you breathe is by pushing up with your feet 
which are nailed through the ankle into the cross. You'd push up and take a breath and then relax. But if you have broken legs, you try to push up and it was a horrible death. And it's also interesting that Jesus didn't stop that terrible death. He didn't save that man from those horrible few hours. And yet, that man was with Jesus in paradise that day. Though his body was dead, he was alive with Christ that very day. We would say that thief died on the cross. And yet, Jesus was with that man in paradise. I'll take a little aside here to talk about the word paradise. The word paradise is not Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic. It's a Persian word, and it's a very specific word. And it's interesting that Jesus used that phrase on the cross that day, saying that the man would be in paradise with Jesus. Paradise is used a few times in the scriptures. It refers to the Garden of Eden, the paradise of God. And it's a Persian word that means a garden. And it can specifically refer to a king's garden. And those Persian gardens, those paradises, were very, very large tracts of land that were surrounded by a wall. And within that garden were trees and fields and rivers and lakes and all sorts of plants and animal life. And people could only enter that paradise at the invitation of the king. The paradise, the garden, was not the palace, but it was right next to the palace, and it was the king's domain. And when my mother was in her last days, we talked about this. One of her favorite old hymns was In the Garden. The first lyric is, I come to the garden alone. He walks with me and he talks with me in the garden. And that's in paradise. It's beautiful to think about that when followers of Jesus, those who have faith in Jesus, pass away from this world, they are immediately with Jesus in paradise, in his garden, at his invitation. And I will talk about this in a future talk when I talk about the time between death and resurrection according to what we see in the scriptures. I've heard it said, and it's helpful to think of this, Followers of Jesus are born twice and die once, and those who do not follow Jesus are born once and die twice. The scripture talks about something called the second death. Those who do not follow Jesus are born once and they die twice. Once, when their spirits leave their bodies, they die that physical death, and then later there's a second death. This is hell, a lake of fire, and it's in the book of Revelation. So let me take a moment to read what God says about this second death. In Revelation chapter 2, we read, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Well, what is this second death? Revelation 20 tells us, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is Revelation 20. And I want to say something here. Hades and Sheol, that's not hell in the scriptures. Hell is different from Hades or Sheol in the Old Testament. Hades and Sheol is the place of the dead, where the dead go before the judgment. And this lake of fire is the second death. Revelation 20 verse 14. Verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And then in Revelation 21, 
He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. There's a list in verse 8 of Revelation 21 of those who will not enter into God's life. And it's interesting that the first in that list is the cowardly, those who are fearful. And that's something that God would say, the cowardly will not inherit eternal life. Well, I can understand why his love drives out fear. God's people are going to be those who overcome even the hard things because they have nothing to fear because we realize that after this life is over, there's more to come and there's really nothing to be afraid of at all. So that's a look at what this second death is. A breathing and active human being can be dead in God's sight And a dead corpse is by no means evidence that the person is, in fact, dead. That is a different kingdom. Well, there's a couple of other words that I want to look at. Love and joy mean different things to God than they do to us. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes, Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In John 13, Jesus says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, you must love one another. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, look at this. To be joyful is commanded. To love others is commanded. And Jesus commands us to rejoice and be glad, to be joyful and happy, because great is your reward in heaven if you are persecuted or people insult you because you're a follower of Jesus. He commands us to be joyful. Here we see Jesus specifically saying that there's going to be hardships on this earth because we follow him. And we should be joyful and glad. (laughs) That is a different kingdom, my goodness. Well, I want to look at how love and joy are commanded. How can that be? The world says that love and joy are emotions. And how can one command an emotion? Can you say, I command you to like pistachio ice cream? Or I command you to enjoy reading a book. How can you command an emotion? Well, In the kingdom of God, love and joy are not emotions. They are of the will, and so they can be commanded. The world thinks of love as being based on emotions. And certainly in Western society, often the word love usually means infatuation or preference for something that brings gratification. People would say, oh, I love that music. I love your hair. Most popular music uses the word love to mean something quite distant from God's definition. Perhaps you've heard a teaching about the various Greek words for love. Well, English is quite limited in this regard. 
we have one word that covers many meanings. In Greek, there's a word for brotherly love, there's a word for erotic love, and then there's a word agape, or for my British friends, agape. This agape love, which is the highest love and the selfless love. A definition of this agape love, according to the scriptures, is not primarily a feeling that you have for someone else that happens to you. It's not a feeling that happens to you. For Jesus, agape love is action. It's a matter of the will, and that's why he can command it. It's a choice that we make to consider the well-being of someone other than ourselves, especially without expecting anything return, and particularly from people who are in difficult circumstances and cannot be expected to repay you. According to Jesus, this agape love is particularly close to the heart of God, and the true test of authentic love is how well you treat the person you can't stand. This enemy embracing love is the true character of God. We can look at an enemy and see their need and act to meet that need, even though they are our enemy. We may not have warm feelings for them, but we can lay our lives down for others, particularly for people who consider themselves our enemies. That's a different kingdom. Well, in a related way, the words love and hate have different meanings. Now, we've seen that love is a matter of the will. Hate is also a word of will and action, not emotion. I've done this teaching a few times, and it's still hard for me to get exactly the right words to communicate what I mean, so apologies here, because still I find myself really wrapped up in the emotional power of the word to hate. But let's look at Luke 14 and see how Jesus talks about it. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. My goodness, Jesus is telling us to hate people. That doesn't sound right. (laughs) He must mean something other than what we think it means. Most surely we should not have emotion of hate towards our parents. We're to honor them. Ephesians chapter 6, quoting Deuteronomy 5, says, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. And Jesus himself quotes this commandment, to honor your father and mother. And yet, Jesus tells us to hate our father and mother. We must turn our attention to our true Father, our one true Father, Heavenly Father. Hate is a matter of the will. It's a turning away from something so that we would turn to God. Hate is a refusal to look upon someone or something as a source of life. When we hate it, it's a rejection of that powerful status in our lives. Hate is a word of will and an action. It's not an emotion. So we can hate our father and mother and our wife and children and our brothers and our sisters and even ourselves as much as we love ourselves. We turn away from all of those things and face ourselves towards the giver of life, our heavenly father. Jesus said if we don't do that, we can't be a disciple of his. And if we don't carry a cross and follow, we can't be disciples. So we really have to break this understanding of the emotional power of the word hate. To hate something in the kingdom is to turn away from it and reject its power and its status. When we do that in relation to our parents, 
then God can bring healing to our relationships with our parents. And this happened to me when I was a young believer. I realized that I hadn't really turned away from my father and mother. Every time I visited them at home, I found myself feeling like a 16-year-old again. And I thought, this is not right. And I realized I just hadn't put them aside and followed God as my father. So one day in my prayer room, it was actually in my garage in Austin, Texas, I sat in a little chair when I would pray. And I got up and I said, I'm leaving my father and mother behind and I'm following God as my father. I accept his place as my father. And I walked, literally walked across the garage, said, I'm leaving him behind and now God is my father. And immediately my relationships with my parents improved dramatically because no longer did they have that place of authority and power in my life. Then they were equals to me, which makes sense because in the kingdom of God, in the future, they're not going to be my mom and dad. They're going to be brother and sister to me in the faith. We'll all be resurrected in our prime. So my parents, my believing grandparents and great-grandparents, We'll all be equal before the Lord, brothers and sisters in the Lord. When he is our father, then our relationship with our parents will be healthy and right. And then we can honor them in the right way. We can honor them, but not look to them as a source of meaning or oversight or covering or provision. God alone has that place for followers of Jesus. If we don't do that, then we're not really disciples. And I'd say a lot of heartache comes because people haven't just turned away from their father and mother. Even folks up in their 60s or 70s, they still hold these grudges because of wrongs that were done earlier in life. Well, anyway, in the kingdom of God, hatred is not an emotion. It's a choosing to turn our attention away from what is not eternal and towards what is eternal. To hate something is to refuse to give it first place, to give it power over our souls. Now that is a different kingdom. How different the world would be if all human beings understood these words as God understands them. Life and death, love and joy, hate. It's a completely different kingdom. When he says these things, he is speaking as the creator of all that is. A friend recently said to my wife, there are two realities a true reality and a false reality. And it really fits into this understanding of two kingdoms. If anything that we think or feel or say is not based on Christ and his teachings and his character, it's a false reality. It may seem real, may make sense, but it's not true. Anything that is based on Christ and his word and his life and his spirit and his teachings and his character, that is true. And we have to move from this kingdom into the kingdom of God. And the way to do that is to deny ourselves. We have to say no to ourselves and yes to God. The way to be a disciple of his and to enter into this new life, this life from above, to take it from the top, to be born again, is to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. That's not a one-time commitment. It is a life of faith. In Greek and in Hebrew, the word faith and the word faithfulness are the same word. We have two different words in English. To have faith carries with it the idea that it happens at one point in time. And to be faithful 
carries with it the meaning of having faith over a period of time. Well, in Greek and Hebrew, it's the same word, faith and faithfulness. God calls us to be faithful, to continually die to ourselves, continually listen to him, continually let him be the shepherd, continually let him be the head. He is the head. You are not. I am not. We are just members of his body. Well, I think I'll wrap it up there for now. In the next talk, I'll look at how the kingdom of God defines winning. (laughs) How do we win at life? How do we come out ahead? I'll also look at how do we gain a meaningful life here. And also in the next talk, I'll take a look at what kind of king do we have. We'll look at what the Bible reveals to us about the character of Jesus and how he is a king. How does he function in his kingdom? So, until the next time, I I do pray that God will continue to reveal himself to you, both his word and his will and his ways, because his ways are very good, and they always bring peace to the soul. Jesus said to his disciples, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for listening, and God bless you all.